0: You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child Hello.
1: Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Lenskip. here with my uh, co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Good morning, Max. Hey. Who's on the show this week? This week on the show is uh, Adam Davidson. Adam is a uh, currently a staff writer at The New Yorker. He has been covering uh, the business dealings of our current president. Uh, for the New Yorker. But before that, he's had all these different lives. He uh, covered the financial crisis and then was a consultant on The Big Short with Adam McKay, the movie. I did not know that. Yeah. He uh, hosted a podcast for Gimlet. He co-founded Planet Money. That's, that was where I knew him from. Yeah, he came up through WBZ and like This American Life, but he also wrote for Harper's. Wasn't he also doing like a uh, like a column in the New York Times Magazine for a while? Yes, he's been, like the guy has like ziling this. He, that he, it's pretty amazing. He's like had just had all these different lives and done all these different things. And uh, so we talked both about this current work he's doing and how you like investigate uh, the business dealings of the president, and then also how you bounce around and have all these different lives. And um, we ended by talking about the difference between sort of like writing magazine articles and making radio stories. Mm. And I'm not sure there's like a ton of people on earth who care about that conversation, (laughs) but but I was really into it. (laughs) Uh, And it was fun, it was fun to talk to him. He's Those stories he's been doing recently, particularly the one really long one about Trump's dealings in Eastern Europe was, this has been said many times about many stories, but it was a classic example of the modern like, that story would destroy any business person or politician like the depth of reporting and the things that went on and then i wonder what it's like to do all that reporting and then have it like not have the effect that it would have had yeah we got into i mean he 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 we sort of compared it it got compared in that conversation to like uh covering global warming like covering covering climate change just like writing about (laughs) trump's businesses Uh, If you want to keep uh, tackling uh, the big topics uh, like uh, Eastern European business dealings or global warming uh, for the audience who does care about them, you can always reach them in their email inbox. That's where everybody looks every day. Why not get an email newsletter with MailChimp? They make it simple. They've got great features like one page landings. If you're selling stuff, all kinds of analytics so you can keep track of who is subscribing. I recommend it. So thanks to MailChimp for helping make this show possible. And now here's Max with Adam Davidson. Hey, Adam Davidson. Hey, Max. Great to see you. (laughs) Great to have you here in uh, this kind of ramshackle studio. Yeah, it's getting hotter. It is. Uh, By the end of this, we're both going to be just like sweating and shirtless and it's going to be gnarly. It's going to be gnarly. Yeah. Yeah. But while we're in the uh, the relative cool, I feel like there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about. You maybe, as much as anyone that we've had on this show, have lived like many journalistic lives and done this work in like many many different formats and mediums. And I kind of want to talk about how you do that and move through those places. But I want to start with where you're at now. Sure. Which is um, covering uh, the president of the United States, particularly his business interests for the New Yorker magazine. We're taping this on Thursday. It's the day after Giuliani casually told the world that Trump actually had repaid Michael Cohen the 130 grand of hush money for Stormy Daniels. Who knows what will happen between now and Wednesday when the show airs. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. And,
2: And after he said that, then this morning, Giuliani went on Fox and Friends and basically almost in a single sentence said, it had nothing to do with the elections and was entirely because of the election. (laughs) And there's like three other things he said that were unbelievable. And then we found out Michael Cohen's
1: phones have been tapped.
2: So that, I think that's where we're at
1: right right. this minute. Well, who, I mean, genuinely, who the fuck knows what will be in six days? But let's just live in the present for a second. What, What do you think is going on?
2: So I do take the strong position that we really are seeing this whole edifice crumbling, that we're, as I wrote in a a New Yorker piece the other week, we are in the end stages of the Trump presidency. Now, the true end stages, as in he will be, if he were to be impeached, is it's a political process, and I don't feel like I have deep expertise or even shallow expertise in you know the kind of Nate Silvery like this county and that but for you it's like a vibe it's a vibe but it's a I think an informed vibe I mean I I think that his business is so bad it's it's I was waiting for you to say how bad is (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, his business is so it's so bad in so many ways it's bad as a business you know like it was just poorly poorly run just as a profit making enterprise you know it's It was a real estate business that was poorly run as a real estate business. And then it became a branding business and it was very bad at being a branding business. Bad how? Bad in not being a steward of the business. Bad in comparing him to anything comparable and there's nothing exactly comparable. But if you look at New York real estate, luxury hotels, you know, golf courses have always been a tough business, but New York real estate, luxury hotels these have expanded dramatically. You look at Four Seasons, Ritz-Carlton. You look at many of the big New York real estate families. I mean, just think of being someone who had access to hundreds of millions of dollars in the 1970s in New York City. Think of all the wealth that came into New York City. And, you know, I mean, my goodness, if you bought like three townhouses in the village in 1970, you know, um, and I mean, I there might be one block in New York where he's the top developer. Like I think most of the properties he's on, he's not even the top developer on the block he's on. Mm -hmm. And there have been several major fortunes made in this time by people, you know, a lot of it is politics, New York real estate is not the cleanest or, but a lot of it is investing strategically, developing strong credit so you can borrow it's building a little bit of assets so that you can borrow against those to right. build more assets, so you can borrow against those to get more assets. And he just would just squander relationships and hurdle himself. you know, suddenly it's casinos. suddenly it's this, suddenly it's that. So there's very little um, strategic direction or, or amassing of, of wealth. And- so, ju-
1: so just to try and uh, encapsulate what you're saying, basically like, given the like stratospheric rise, of New York real estate at the time he was playing in New York real estate, it didn't go very well. It didn't go nearly as well as you would think it would have. Like Even like the median, it even, was way below yeah, average. It was way below average.
2: And never a major player. I mean, The Real Deal, which is like the big New York real estate business publication, publishes their top developers in New York. I don't think he's ever been in the top 100. And in fact, I don't think he's ever been in that list. I don't think he's ever ranked <laughs> in that list at all. And then... He switches around slowly between like 96 and 2006 to becoming really a branding company, not just Trump Steaks and all that, but Trump hotels, Trump office towers, putting his name on things. And there too, you see very poor branding discipline at a time when you know his nearest competitors are five plus star hotels that really compete in that space that Trump has defined for himself of being a real location, a, a, a not just a nice hotel with five stars but a real destination for mm-hmm. the fanciest weddings and galas. And you know, he's a latecomer in third tier markets. You know, it's Trump Tower Baku, it's Trump Tower Panama, Trump Tower Uruguay. Which is not to say there's anything wrong. No shade on Uruguay. No shade on Uruguay, but there's no Trump London, there's no Trump Paris. Mm-hmm. There is a Trump DC, which is odd, but um then on top of it, so it's bad as business. Like, let's just say he's the most ethical businessman. In the it's just an unimpressive business. Mm-hmm. And then he's not ethical. He's doing <laughs> business with really terrible, truly terrible people. He's right. doing, um, you know, the the folks I wrote about, the Mamata family in Azerbaijan. There's abundant evidence that they were, for the entire duration of his relationship with them, which overlapped with the entire duration of the presidential campaign, they were actively helping Iran's Revolutionary Guard, the sort of core terror financers, weapons of mass destruction arm of Iran's like most loyal to the Ayatollah units, launder money. And his partners in Georgia, while he's doing business with them, are under investigation for being part of the largest bank fraud in history, possibly. Um, largest money laundering case in history his partner in Indonesia is an unbelievably I mean he was just in under house arrest for attempted murder and and on and on and on I yeah. mean it's it's almost too much to believe so well,
1: that thing it almost being too much to believe I want to just stop on that for a second because like even while you were saying that I could feel you getting kind of like exhausted by this list of sort of like nefarious hacks that it, he's in business with,
2: and it's a tough, tough story to tell for a bunch of reasons. Yeah, and, that, and that's
1: part of why I wanted to talk to you. Is like I feel a little bit like this beat that you're on, like explaining this tangled web of businesses that the president continues to operate. It's like a little bit like um, covering global warming. Like yeah. it's like it's hard to get people excited about
2: it. Exactly. I mean, there's something, and when I was at Planet Money, I talked. We talked a lot about this. That. There are these topics that almost because they're so big and so important, they're kind of so diffuse. And there's a sameness to the Trump stories. Like, you know, every six weeks I come out with another big story about now his deal in Uruguay, now his deal in the Dominican Republic, now his deal in Sunny Isles, Florida. And there's just – there's a sameness of – he was sort of desperate. He was sort of pathetic. He dealt with some pretty sketchy people. He did a bunch of things that you would think would get him in trouble, and then nobody cares. And right. and so both as just a storyteller, like someone who wants to write stories that engage an audience and excite an audience, it's tough because you just see the headline, Trump's Crooked Deal in blank, and you're like, oh, yeah, I think I read that article already, even if... Right. Yeah. Well, it's
1: kind of like imagine this picture of Miami in 2045. Right. It's like, oh, well, that is just unbelievably scary. And I've seen that story before. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. like, what's next on
2: my like Twitter feed? Yeah, you know? exactly. And it's really exciting to read a really specific, narrow story about something less significant, but with a real drama and real arc. So um, I'm not particularly interested in Trump. I don't know that I've actually... I've learned facts about him, but I don't know that I've like deepened my own. Like, I feel like I kind of got who he was (laughs) in the 80s and, you know, just as a kid growing up in New York and he's just that guy. I mean, it's not a, you know, a rich character where there's a lot, you know, he's fully who he is. I mean, I think my one remaining question is exactly how knowing was he with the criminality of his business partners i mean that like i feel like i'm my hunch is that at the end of the day it'll be uglier than we realize and more blatant than we realize that that we will find out that he fully knew mm-hmm. that his business was fundamentally selling gold packaging to fundamentally corrupt operations to deter authorities from looking at them. But when you say it like that it doesn't sound bad at all. It doesn't sound bad. <laughs> but I do think there's a chance that a combination of narcissism and some kind of, you know, Roy Cohn inspired savvy allowed him to actively not know, even mm-hmm. though he had a strong sense. So but that being said, I don't have deep questions about him, which makes it hard, you know, I find like it's hard to tell a story in an exciting way if there's not something you're excited about. So and, what's
1: the thing that you're excited about with these business stories?
2: Well, I think, you know, so the the first story I did, the first real in-depth story was about his deal in Azerbaijan. Yeah. And what was exciting about that was just really learning how the, you know, just deeply how a corrupt family operates. And it's pretty crude. It's not like super elegant. It's you're the Minister of Transportation, you give out contracts for $28 million a mile to build roads. The global average is like 5 or $6 million a mile. And these roads are pretty badly built, so they're probably spending a lot less than that. And then you give the contract to someone who then gives you a lot of the money. I mean, it's not super subtle, but it was interesting to learn that, about mm-hmm. how corruption worked in Azerbaijan, and to start developing a view of And and Azerbaijan itself was interesting to learn about. I didn't know that much about it. And this country that's like a very secular, pro-Israel, pro-Western Muslim country that remains very close to Iran, and to Russia, and to Israel, and to America, and has become quite clever at balancing all of these relationships. Now, Trump's partner was very much an Iran-Russia guy, not I mean, there are other business people who are much more Israel-America guys. So that was interesting. Then the story I did in Georgia was a different kind of interesting because it was a slightly more global. Like it was these Kazakhs and these Georgians. And, you know, in both cases, Trump kind of comes in in the middle of what looks like maybe a scheme. You know, it's not... And in both cases, these were like 2011-ish deals. It's not looking anything like collusion or let's partner with the future president. It's more, we're doing some shady business. It'd be good to have a famous American's name on that shady business. Now, the thing that I'm kind of excited about now, I would say, is, is going up a notch. So like, to what extent I've learned a lot about global oligarch slash criminal networks and and learning the richness of that world and trying to yeah. understand how did, you know, I don't think Trump's a major player in that world. I don't know if it's appropriate to even call him part of that world so much as...
1: It's like drafting off it kind of? Yeah, drafting off it, feeding off it. Okay, so you've written these stories, these kind of big reported stories about Trump's deals in other places. And then you wrote this post two weeks ago, basically making the argument that much like the financial crisis this feels like it has all the hallmarks of uh, the end like a bubble that we're not quite seeing not quite able to see but all of these characteristics are there and it wasn't like uh, the other example was your time in Iraq and it it wasn't like um, a super like heavily reported thing you were kind of just like listen I've been in some places that were like about to go bust it feels like this is about to go bust the Trump presidency and My sense is, just from uh, the outside, is that like that post, like, crazy cop fire. It was a thing people wanted to read.
2: Yeah, and it was, you know, you never know. I was talking to David Remnick on the phone on a Saturday. He was just kind of checking in, and I sort of said my feelings, like I was just talking to my boss about Mm -hmm. my feelings, and he's like, write that up. And I wrote it up real quick and sent it in. And then, yeah, it was like I haven't had something like that in a long time, where it was just retweeted a million times. Yeah. And people. And then, of course, it, like every day that week, there's like all these people had to write columns criticizing my column, or you know, and um, which is fine. I mean, I, I, it's fine. It's fair enough. But I mean, I think to me, the point I wanted to make, and and maybe the fact that some people didn't get this means I didn't write it well enough, but is. And I didn't, I didn't put Hurricane Katrina in this, but I, I've covered a few stories where there was a period of time. So Iraq, the financial crisis, Hurricane Katrina, the facts on the ground. So not, not the like theory, not the like I'm going on MSNBC to argue this point, but Fox is arguing that point. But literally, what you see in front of you, not no controversy, just clear, is very, very, very different from the national. Understanding. And when it's that stark, it seems like eventually the national understanding catches up. Mm-hmm. And it seems to happen quite abruptly. Like it there's a building and a building and a building, and then it explodes. And and I you know, we're in this mode of, well, nothing moves Trump's favorability and unfavorability. It's just stuck, and that's going to go on forever. And I know from having covered countless financial forecasts and economic forecasts that the standard forecast is everything will continue as it's been, (laughs) which, by the way, is pretty good most of the time. Like, you know, the best bet at any given moment for the next few weeks or months is it'll be just like the last few weeks and months. But that always misses inflection points. So we miss points where there's a dramatic shift in direction where there's a you know thesis and an antithesis. Yeah. And and then we also miss the reversion to the mean, the return to the trend. And so it's a hard thing to have faith in because it does right now feel weak and abstract. But like Iraq the story for like the bulk of 2003 was going really well. Like, yeah, done did it. Yeah. And the story in 2008 was holy crap we almost had a financial crisis but we didn't thank right. god all those naysayers were wrong and you could think of a million reasons why my analogy is inaccurate and trump is different fine i you know but what i would predict is there will be some focal point where you know it could be a tape recording with michael cohen it could be that will just It'll be something that it could have come out six months ago and it wouldn't have been a big deal, but it'll come at the right moment and it'll convey, oh, you know, obviously like whatever, 60 percent, like every single person you and I know already, like we never didn't think he's like a terrible idiot. And obviously there's some percentage, 20, 25 percent who are never going to abandon him or, you know, are very likely to go to their graves wishing they could have declared him dictator
1: Mm -hmm. it's that middle 15 to 20s yeah but but
2: you know you get just a few of those and it's a fundamentally different story so i i think we're gonna get that moment Mm -hmm. and i think it's gonna just like oh i mean i do have some trump supporters in my life and the way they talk i don't have i don't have any gung-ho trump supporters
1: you don't have any of the uh, dictator for life
2: no but i do have family who are like Yeah, but everyone's terrible and at least he's getting stuff done and, you know, but they're leaving themselves an out and they're going to be able to very easily merge into, oh, I always hated that guy. I always knew he was a crook, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's not very few of the 15 to 20 percent who swing are going to experience it as a swing. They're going to experience it as I always. Yeah, I told you I didn't want to vote for either of them. They're both crooks.
1: Anyway, that's
2: my story. And I'm sticking
1: with it. (laughs) It's interesting hearing you talk about it. Like you're interested in um, these worlds in Azerbaijan and how corruption at that level works. And you're interested in trying to connect the dots between this moment we're living in now and other sort of moments of great upheaval that you've lived through and reported on, which I think is important. But I mean, I guess you touched on this a little bit earlier. I guess I can't quite tell how interested you are in this. Like, in the fact that this guy is president. Like, you're covering it. It is, by some measures, like, the biggest story in America in, like, 50 years. It's all the entire internet talks about all the time. And I guess my question is kind of like, are you covering it because, like, you you got to do that? Or are you covering it because, like, you actually wake up in the morning and you're like, there's questions I have about this. And I have a burning desire to to answer them.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think I am as a citizen. I am still. I heard Zoe Chase on your show, and uh, and she said a thing that I feel like I am as shocked this moment that Trump was elected as I was the moment he was elected. Like I have that that fundamental state of shock. Like it's literally like there's a pile of putrid rotting human feces on a table and like six of the people around the table are like that is disgusting and four like oh it's so delicious oh I love it it's delicious and I keep saying why do you like it and they're like because donuts suck man your friggin' donuts suck I mean I'm um, so I I think when I was confronted with two options in my mind like I experienced it after his election with two options one mm. was I want to figure out America and like and that's scary and i want to figure out the actual mechanics of his business and and how it worked and i on like i think like there was a day in you know november where you know or a few days where i really could have gone either way and then it just seemed like a lot of people were running to the figure out america thing and i was like well i you know i I like business stuff and, I'm, yeah. you know, some people are intimidated by business stories and I'm not. And so I chose that. And then that manifests itself by further discovery. So, yeah, so I, I'm, that is interesting. I mean, Trump is not a very interesting person in my mind. He's a very, very simple, like one of the most simple public figures ever. And his business is complex in that it's lots of people doing lots of things but the fundamental nature of it is not that mysterious. So it is a challenge to keep me engaged, but I'm engaged. And then as a citizen I've never been more engaged. You know, I've people in my family through marriage who are undocumented immigrants. I've people in my family who are suffering in many many ways, like directly suffering more than I am mm-hmm. and and you know, I have a six-year-old son and, and I'm, you know, I'm deeply concerned about the world he's growing up in and uh, honestly feel like I want to be able to like, show him I did something. So there's a lot of motivations that are kind of new for me that have never motivated me as a journalist before. But, but I think staying engaged and excited is crucial and it, it's tough in a way that it has not been in, in a different way than it's been in the past.
1: Has your like journalism ever been as connected to your uh, citizenry?
2: I really don't think so. I mean, I it's you know I I was in the Middle East for a few years and I was in Iraq for a full year and and then for several years I um, I was a business reporter at NPR but I was one of the people that you know you you could like I knew how to operate in a disaster area so you know the tsunami or Hurricane Katrina or you know, like whatever crisis erupted, I could go cover mm-hmm. it. And I kind of prided myself on not being an emotional reporter and feeling like like I can just focus on the story. My biases aren't going to get in the way and my emotions aren't going to get in the way. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you're a Middle East correspondent, you know, I'm Jewish, my mom's from Israel. Like, you're constantly hearing, you know, like, not just like, is that anti-Zionist or anti-Semitic? Like, deeply anti-Semitic, like Hitler was a great man, Nine Eleven was a Jewish conspiracy kind of stuff. And I just did not care. Like, it just didn't matter. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't my country. And somehow the financial crisis, which was the American crisis I was so invested in, it just felt like, I was serving America in a small way by like just helping them understand it and and it didn't feel like like this one this story the Trump story makes me feel like I I don't know that I like large swaths of America where I'm like I think I you know I used to like going my wife and I would go on road trips and I'd like to go to smaller rural areas and chat with people and you sort of know you have different viewpoints but you, you don't really care and and this one I don't know how I fall in love with all of America again or feel connected to it again.
1: I mean, at the risk of, like, falling into rhetoric, we're going to hear a lot in the fall and in 2020. Like, I don't know, man. Do you spend a lot of time out there in the world? Like, think uh, America can, like, fall in love with itself again? I, it Yeah, it's scary. <laughs> it, it
2: is a scary thought. I... I I don't know if we ever were I I happened to take a road trip. I'm from New York, but I I lived away from New York for many years and then in 2012 I moved back and two of my friends who I grew up with flew out to LA to drive back to New York with me and we drove like we took a long wandering road around America and it was it was very magical cuz it was close enough after 9/11 that somehow just being from New York was patriotic and was like People had reverence for us and welcomed us. And I really liked that. Mm. And 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 those human interactions, I think, like, I, I, that feels like, I bet that at some point when I have time, I'll be able to go on a road trip and be like, okay, these schmucks got taken for a ride. <laughs> and right. I don't respect them as much as I might have a few years ago, but I get it. Mm-hmm. Like, I basically get it. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if I'll ever like Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell But I I feel like
1: baby steps, man. Baby steps. Baby steps. But I do.
2: It is hard to hate people when you actually engage them Mm -hmm. in a in a real way. And you know, as you know, when you interview someone, you really do fall in love with them. And you, if you do it well, and you kind of your guard is lowered. I mean, I hear it when you interview people that you go through that. And. It's, um, it's an emotional experience. It's an emotional <laughs> experience. It really is, and and I do want to do that. I want to do that. It doesn't mean you're you forgive them. Yeah, yeah. I tried. There's this family in South Carolina that I wrote about years ago, and I've stayed close with. And then I have some friends from Iraq who are refugees who lived not far from them, and I was just noticing, like my two Facebook, like the Iraqis were like in real pain. I mean, the true pain, like they were being attacked. I mean not verbally but still right, quite yeah. emotionally in rural Georgia these Iraqi refugees and then my South Carolina evangelical Christian friends were just not feeling it and I tried a like you know what? I'll fly down let's all of us like have a meal and trust me to like each other And mm-hmm. they, were, they were not <laughs> having it <laughs> wait you did that? I tried uh, no one was willing to yeah, do yeah, it yeah. so I never did it yeah you yeah. couldn't even get to the yeah. terribly awkward meal yeah because I wrote them I was like I know both of you these two moms. I was right. like, honestly, I swear you guys would really like each other. But Get the fuck like, out of here, yeah. Davidson. Yeah, exactly.
1: I feel like I could talk about uh, that all day, but we should not talk about all, right. that all day. But I don't know that we can. We have enough time to spend on all of these different phases in your life, uh, your journalistic life. I feel like um, a challenge of this when people like yourself come on who have like done so much is it's hard to like go super deep on everything. Yeah. But like, you were an investigative reporter. You started Planet Money at NPR. You were super involved reporting on the financial crisis, and then really involved in the Big Short, the film. You started a podcast with Gimlet, and now you're staff running the New Yorker. There are definitely things in there that I've missed. There are like big steps in there that I've missed.
2: I mean, I worked at WBEZ in Chicago for many years. I did a lot for This American Life. I mean, yeah. I was central to my life for a long time, and then Marketplace, I was right. there. Yeah, but you, yeah, the the key.
1: Why do you think that you've made these big moves? Like, I feel like you've had, like, eight careers in one career, and I was wondering how you do that and
2: why. I mean, I, if you had asked me, at, I think at any point in my life, like, since I was, like, 14 or 15 like what do you want to do what is your dream i would have said to be a staff writer at the new yorker and congratulations yeah i know (laughs) it's good um i mean i think that was you know that was the lodestar you know i that was the thing and i both in high school and college and in my 20s like reading beautiful nonfiction, mostly by new yorker writers was You know, formative. I mean, crucially, crucially formative. And I mean, this is a terrible thing to confess. I mean, I do genuinely feel embarrassed when I say this. Radio never felt like home, it never felt like what I wanted to do. I like, right when I was graduating college, I did an internship at the local public radio station in Chicago. And I had some internships lined up in New York where I grew up to work at the foreword and American Theater Magazine. And I was really excited to move to New York, start my magazine writing career, which was the only thing I ever wanted to do.
1: Imagine the American theater stories you would have written. Yeah, exactly.
2: And then I got offered a paying gig at WBEZ in Chicago for $100 a week in 1992. And I just thought, well, I should take the paying gig over unpaid internships. And from 1992 to 2011, I was basically trying to write for print and kept getting better job offers Hmm. in radio. And I love radio and I love what I learned and the people I've worked with and I'm very proud of a lot of the work I did. I don't wanna overstate things, but when I look back I was really overwhelmed with self-doubt for all of my 20s into my 30s. And I think, like, I sort of came of age in, like, around 32 or something. And But it was really hard. I mean, really, like,
1: paralyzing. Even while you were doing all this work?
2: But I think that radio, because it felt like it wasn't the thing, Mm -hmm. like, I don't think... You know, my, my office mate at The New Yorker is Ben Taub, and who's, you know, I think he's 13 years old. Or, <laughs> yeah, no, no.
1: Um, Also one of my favorite episodes of this thing ever. Yeah, yeah, night. it was wonderful.
2: Yeah. And he's a wonder, truly wonderful guy. But I could not, like, I literally could, like, in my 20s, I had a few times where I was given long-form magazine of science, and I literally, like, couldn't do them, you know? <laughs> I mean, it was just my self-doubt was too powerful. And so it's funny to me, because most people who know me Self doubt is not a word that comes <laughs> up a lot. I've, I've kind it struck of struck me as a confident <laughs> person. Yeah, I've kind of gone the other way. <laughs> but in my twenties, it was pretty brutal. And I think radio was like a vacation from the pressure, hmm. and and it allowed me to do stuff like it, it didn't matter at the end of the day. Hmm. Like it mattered. It mattered. Dude, no, I don't no, want to no, overstate no, I... it. Like I cared a lot, and I wanted. Like when I was doing stuff for This American Life, I really wanted to impress ira and do a really good story and but so in in my mind like it i've done a lot of different things but it's like i wanted to be a New Yorker writer and then i became a new yorker writer like that would be the arc that like mm, it's like everything and then now kind of, i mean i don't want to i don't like i'm really proud truly deeply proud and loving of planet money of this American life of the people I've worked with there and feel very lucky and in many ways those are my closest friends still but in my heart I'm you know like I remember I I, and I was very happy at the New York Times Magazine I mean I like um, but like it's weird how much the New Yorker like has lived up to Mm -hmm. the thing and it's not that it's lived up in like like I think part of me had a kind of like now you get the keys to the magical kingdom and that's not what the New Yorker is like the New Yorker is in many ways is very different from anywhere else but in a way it's a lot like this American life where there's like there's a lot of humility individual humility and a feeling that like the thing we're doing really matters like we want it to be amazing and we want it to be great and that the big boss the tall, skinny Jew with curly black hair at the top is is going to work harder, feel more, you know, be more committed than any of us at making this thing great. And and you know, it, it drags out the best of you, and and then supports the best of you in a very wonderful way. So the other things I, w- I would just say is like, I mean, there's a bunch of um, technical things that I remember. There was a time. When I first started writing for the New York Times Magazine, it was like everything I wrote in print, they'd be like, it's too casual. Like it's mm-hmm. just written
1: like a Like script. you were like writing it for radio?
2: Yeah. And then, but then I'd go back and write for radio and it would be like, that's too formal. <laughs> it's too, too right. and I, I felt, so I do think I had to learn to have two brains, like mm-hmm. like almost like speaking two different languages. And they're very different in a lot of technical ways. Like it's... There was a time when I first went to the New York Times Magazine and I wrote this column and the idea was, well, you're doing Planet Money stories, so just kind of record them and then they could be a radio story and a print story. And in my experience, that just doesn't work. What a story is, isn't the same. How you interview people isn't the same. How quotes work aren't the same. How you structure a story isn't the same. They're just totally different.
1: I've spent a, a little time in both of those worlds now and one of the things that's felt different to me is that the people who practice those kinds of journalism are like incredibly emotional about them like they are similarly emotional about them but the emotions don't translate at all to the other one does that make sense yeah like i'm not surprised basically is what i'm saying that like one was the thing and the other was a thing you were doing which was really fun and interesting and exciting but just didn't feel like the thing i mean
2: here's the So some of the people I've been closest to in the world and have spent the most time working with, Nancy Updike, Alex Bloomberg, Julie Snyder, Ira, Hanna Jaffe-Walt, Zoe Chase, David Kismet, you know, I could go on and on. They will happily spend so many (laughs) hours cutting tape and massaging the tape. And if it's not just right, and I never was like that with radio. Like... I always felt like if someone else could just cut my tape, like I would see how to structure the story and it would be fun and it, you know, but I just never, but with print, like I can do that with print. Mm-hmm. Like I can, I mean, you know, writing's hard and I don't want to make it sound like it's, you know, I have all the things everyone has as a writer. Like it's, it's a really hard thing to do, but I really want it to be fabulous. And mediocre, like I'm okay with being fine on the radio and I'm not okay with being fine in <laughs> print. Although I have been plenty of times, crappy, but right. but it it hurts me to this day. Like right. I wrote this cover story for the New York for the Atlantic in 2011, which was I'm proud of it. It wasn't a bad cover story, but there's like certain things that to this day hurt me. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's anything I've ever done in radio that hurts me. Even though I've done plenty of crappy stuff, <laughs> it doesn't Just doesn't like keep you up at night. Yeah, and similarly, like so. I worked on the Big Short with Adam McKay, which was an amazing, wonderful experience. I then worked on a TV show with David O. Russell that ended up getting canceled, Um, but uh, because it was produced by Harvey Weinstein, um, and and was caught up in that. Um, And those were amazing. I loved working with them, and it was so exciting and making the Big Short and being on set and like in the whole process of writing words on a page, and then it becomes words that Brad Pitt is saying or Ryan Gosling is saying. Like, it's crazy. But it's similar that, like, I see with Adam McKay or David O. Russell the agony they feel if it's not exactly right and the willingness to just stick with it and stay with it. And, you know, I have that for magazine writing, nonfiction, Hmm. long-form
1: nonfiction writing. And I I have since I was a kid and it hasn't budged. Do you think that it has to be from when you were like a kid do you think that that's what that about that's about like this thing that i've noticed living a little bit in radio land after having lived in magazine land is like i think the radio people just grew up being like i want to do this radio stuff
2: yeah i heard zoe talk about how radio saved her life in her early 20s yeah i don't know if it has to be i think it is for i'm just thinking of the people i've talked to about this i think I think it is deep. I mean, for one thing though is you know, I watched Ira Glass create this American life and it long form radio was a desert before this American life. You know, mm-hmm. there was you know, there were a few people doing stuff Ira was doing stuff for all things considered and stuff, but it wasn't I mean, there was fresh air. But I don't know that like someone my age, I'm almost 48 Like, like
1: how would that person even have gotten excited about radio? Kind of, yeah. yeah.
2: I mean, that's what I do. Like, intellectually, I think of right now in audio storytelling is, like, it's an unbelievably thrilling moment. Because if you think of print storytelling and video storytelling, like, they're so well-developed, you know, and in so many different ways. And audio... I mean, I don't have to tell you this. It's just brand new. Like we don't, we're still calling like this and This American Life and just some like accountant who just talks to his friends about accounting. We're calling all of those things podcasts. You know, it's like- The accountant podcast could be good, don't uh. By the way, there's an accountant podcast I really like <laughs> um, called Thrival. Um, we'll we'll but, put it in the show notes.
1: Yeah, Jason Blummer. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. That's really interesting because it's funny because when I think about who those people are, for whom this is like the end all be all, they're not forty eight.
2: Yeah, I mean, it it is an interesting thing to have seen. Like it, you know, the first decade of podcasting was like almost everyone was like worked for Ira or worked for someone who worked for Ira. Right. You know, it's it and and to this day, it's a huge force in the totally. world. And but I think, I mean, for a whole host of reasons, we had this like narrow, you know, we had this narrow funnel through which audio like spoken audio went mm-hmm. and you know it's not that we had nothing I mean you know there was radio theater there was Garrison Keeler, there was you know Joe Richmond and Joe Frank and and those were by the way very important to me but they didn't like they weren't like grabbing me by the heart in the way that Joseph Mitchell did or
1: oh, that's interesting man I yeah. thought a lot about that divide that like print audio divide I hadn't quite, I hadn't quite pegged it that clearly.
2: I, I mean, I think it's there. There's a bunch of things to it. I think, in a way, I don't know if I want to overstate this, but in a way, great long form audio is more about the people you're talking to. And I'm not sure if I actually believe this, but I'm going to say it as if I believe it. Um, <laughs> this is the new confident. Out yeah, of exactly. Here. Yeah, that. Print feels to me like something I am creating. And I am like fully, like it is my voice and my argument and my ideas. And I have total control over Like I have finesse, or I'm trying to have finesse mm-hmm. over it. And I decide how people are brought on stage. I decide, I'm, I have this editor, John Kelly, at the New York Times Magazine. I remember I was writing about someone who... So even the arc of the story needed to be somewhat sympathetic. I was like, this guy's an asshole. And he said, remember, we always have our finger on the asshole button. Like we can dial it up, dial it down. We have total control. And with audio, good audio, like you're doing a lot. You're making a ton of choices and, you know, you're editing the shit out of it for This American Life or Radio Lab or whatever. But there's a degree to which you're like, You need the person to reveal themselves, and then they choose to what degree do they reveal themselves and to what degree do they not. So, like when Zoe was talking to you about Jeff Flake and spending months with Jeff Flake and just like desperately trying to get Jeff Flake to be human, I could do that in print without needing him to be human. You know, Mm -hmm. I can observe, you know, Michael Lewis wrote that wonderful book about. Was it the 96 campaign or the 92 campaign? I can't remember where he's going around with these jackass politicians who are never anything but artificial. And he's like relishing and reveling in, in writing about their artificiality. And, and that's very hard to do in radio. So I do think of radio as maybe a little more, I almost want to say generous or more geared towards the other person. Mm-hmm. Um which is not to say it's not amazing craftsmanship, and people like Nancy Updike who are just, and Sarah Koenig who are just like beautiful writer, like radio writers, and the, and they're definitely bringing a lot of themselves and their perspective. And obviously, you're making a lot of choices about who you interview at all and what you're bringing. But it feels less; it's more that you're you're a participant in telling the story rather than it's your story that you are telling. Right. And I I think that to me, might be why I like print better.
1: Well, there's also this thing with audio, though, right, where, like, you're so dependent on the tape in a way that you're not. Like, I don't know, man. I've read 150 magazine stories in the last, like, three weeks, you know? Right. I can't tell you one quote from any of them. Yeah. Like, it's not about the quotes. It's about the story. It's about the, how the stories. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. But if you really think about, like, great audio moments... A lot of times, there are turns and moves in the, in the storytelling, but usually it's tape. It's tape, yeah. You know,
2: and there's a million skills that go into that. It's of course, really of hard, course, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I learned so much from Ira and from all the people I've mentioned about how to just while you're asking questions, how to elucidate a great moment. How but to, that
1: is like some fundamental difference. That's right? a fundamental difference,
2: yeah. Like I, I mean, I would say in my print stories, there's. I don't know what the average number of quotes are, but there are very few quotes. And what quotes are there are usually for evidence. Like, it's, like, I I used to say at Planet Money, like, quotes should be emotion. Like, you can do the information better than someone else can, because that's, like, we're good. You know, you don't go to someone to say, and then interest rates fell by 1.3 percentage points. Like, we can say that in a more exciting and interesting way. You go to them for, like, and then I looked at the computer screen, and I was like, (gasps) oh! the bottom's falling out of the market or whatever. Right. Whereas I feel that the opposite, that in print, quotes are, especially in investigative reporting, it's like, I've set up this moment and I've tried to convey something. And then, and Max Linsky, who was an FBI agent for 13 years, said, that is a crime according to federal law, you know, and which is a totally non-emotional right. <laughs> quote. right. I will say I'm not a particularly writerly writer. I mean, I try and be clear and, you know, I kind of always had the attitude of like a, a writer, like a, a waiter. <laughs> like the less your readers are aware of you, the better, you know, it's. But I find it like somehow in some ephemeral, like it's just soul satisfying to like structure it so that it's, you know, I mean, something I kind of love and also kind of hate is when with radio, there's less. Is it ambiguity or less? I feel like the moves are much less subtle sometimes. <laughs> like, if you listen to this American Life, it's pretty clear, I think, like what the beats are and how you're supposed to feel. And, you know, it's not like a sappy rom com, although I do love sappy rom coms where it's like the music and everything is like, mm-hmm. feel sad now, feel scared now, feel happy now, feel, <laughs> you know. Um, but it's in that direction. Whereas print, and this is something David Remnick talks a lot about, is. You want to leave space for the reader to be like, oh, I think I figured something out. And I both hate it and kind of love it when someone will read an article and write an email saying, what you didn't realize is... (laughs) And I'm like, no, no, I structured the whole
1: story. That was for you you to realize. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This email proves my point. Yeah. Man, that's that's compelling stuff. That's helpful for me. Really. Yeah. Like it's a thing I've been thinking about and you just put a lot of language to it that I hadn't been able to. I
2: think, I think it's, um, and I, I mean, I've never said it exactly in that way myself. I mean, it's funny cause I, my, this is an actual genuinely painful conversation with my radio friends. Like I think they feel like I, I don't have it with them.
1: And you mean, cause you're like, I don't love you that way. Yeah. Kind
2: of. And then my print friends don't like really know what I'm, Talking about. So <laughs> I, I don't really have anyone to talk to about this. Even my wife is like, she loves NPR. She loves everything on the radio. And she's a writer. She likes writing. But like for her, I had, like, she knows writing. And I had this like magical audio skill that was like cool and mysterious. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, she's proud of me and happy I'm at The New Yorker. But I think part of her was a little sad that I left radio behind. And, um, and she doesn't like hearing me like bitch about like limitations in audio, well, stuff. did you
1: just tell her listen the whole game the whole time was to become a New Yorker staff writer, and I've done it. I've done it exactly, yeah, usually, I f- feel compelled to ask people uh, at the end of these things like what they're gonna do next, and I was looking forward to asking that because you've done so many things, but you've you've just landed where you wanted to land,
2: yeah, I mean, I'm excited like i really I've been enjoying doing. Like, I'm doing an unscripted, meaning like a kind of quasi-documentary TV series for with Adam McKay, starring Cal Penn. That'll be on Amazon. And, uh, and that's been fun. And then- That's Kosher with The New Yorker? Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't take a lot of time. That's their main concern. And then um, I loved working with David O. Russell on this other TV show where like, because The Big Short was really fun. It's hard to convey. Just, I mean, it's- Like, that was a whole other thing where I was taking some of my knowledge but helping David create entire characters and fictional worlds, which was so fun. I found it thrilling. And I loved doing, like, I enjoyed doing radio, and I enjoyed doing things that aren't the main job. Like, it's fun to be distracted by something that matters and is cool and is, you know. So I I would love to do that in my life and have that as a part of my life. but I don't, it's not like there's another hill to climb, like mm-hmm. a specific thing I've always wanted that now I gotta get. You've made it, man. <laughs> it doesn't feel like you've made, I gotta say, like the lie, or not the lie, the mis, like it's the most demanding job I've had in a long time. I mean, it's not. What makes it so demanding? I mean, I think it's a self, like you want to earn your place and you want to work really hard because everyone else is working really hard. Everyone is working really, really hard. Yeah. And the culture, like there's nobody who's lazy or doesn't seem like they should be there. Like everyone is really, really good and really, really committed. And you, you it's a joy, but you want to be equal to that.
1: Adam, thanks for doing this.
2: Thank you. That was very fun.
1: Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Piper, and our intern is Angela Velez. Thanks to MailChimp for making this show possible, and thanks very much to Adam Davidson. You can read his work at thenewyorker.com.